Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, it's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways. Accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, easy to use. Uh, actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, you can see your stats on the app and online. And you can check them out at rapidshot.com. Uh, great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now. Uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, a lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, and for record number 100, episode 100, we're bringing on Matt Cook. Couldn't be happier. Uh, Matt is probably the best coach that I personally know uh, in and out. So, Matt, thanks for coming on, taking your time, uh, and giving it to us, because I've got so much to ask. Happy to be here, Greg. Thank you. So, um Let's kind of go over your background. Usually I don't do that with guests, but I think that you've got a very interesting background um, of how you got to where you are today. You've literally coached at every level that's not professional hockey. Uh, maybe you have, and I just don't know about it. Um, and you've met some very interesting people along the way. So I will let you take it away. Uh, okay. So, um, you know, Greg, as you know, I've done everything from Mites to College Club. Um, I will say that uh, my preference is both ends of the spectrums. Um, I love the mites. I love coaching the college kids. I would say uh, coaching the peewees is the hardest level. Um, but, you know, being on the front end and the back end, I think are both incredibly rewarding. And, uh, it, you know, it has been a treat to, um, you know, move up the ladder as my kids grew up but also coaching without coaching your kids, you know, not being the dad coach. Um, but, you know, each level presents its own challenges and rewards. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad that I got to uh, sample every bite of the pyramid. So starting off, uh, you played mm -hmm. at university school in Cleveland, which uh, just today, I saw it came out as the number one school K-12 uh, in the state of Ohio, as it should be. Not that I'm biased or you're biased on this. Um, so how did you find your way into coaching and when did you know you wanted to be a coach? Uh, well, I, uh, you know, back when Mitch Korn was actually a player for Kent State's club team um, and I was very young, uh, we connected and I, you know, I always admired Mitch and uh, started working for him at age 15 for the Miami University Summer Hockey School. And, uh, you know, I've always said that I, you know, I've got a couple of hockey dads. Mitch is definitely one of them. And over time, as I grew uh, with Mitch and, you know, went to college at Miami and worked for Mitch all the way through college. Uh, and in fact, in my professional career, I still work for Mitch. Um, and his influence cannot be overestimated. Uh, and I will say that more of his influence came off the ice than on the ice. And that's led me to my philosophy and how I want to coach. Um, you know, also at Miami, you had uh, Bill Davidge, who was an, was, is an absolute genius as far as recognizing the power of skill development. And uh, then I would say the third is John Malloy who, uh, you know, despite what we learned in the 70s and the early 80s, you know, said that it could be fun. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a dick to your players all the time. Um, you know, you can let the players develop and let the players have fun and, and appreciate the sport. So I would say as far as uh, personal discipline, that would be Mitch. As far as skill development, I would say that's Bill Davidge. And as far as attitude, I would say that's John Malloy. 
and um, you know, throw in Brian Teeple, who was my coach at university school. And uh, you know, when I became injured, uh, both junior year and senior year, uh, gave me the opportunity to try and basically form a JV team and start coaching my peers. So you started coaching your peers, which is an interesting dynamic. Uh, how did that go? Not well. There, there was there was a lot of learning, um, you know, because you know, two minutes ago was you know who the hell is this guy? You know, who's he to say what we do this? Um, so that and and it's funny because my oldest boy is now coaching the Air Force's club team one year after being on the club team, and and he's going through that same period. And you know, just like Jesus Christ said, you can't be a prophet in your own land. Uh, you know, a little bit of distance helps. So I, I would say that my primary developmental experiences were coaching hockey schools in the summer. And then while I was a student in Oxford, I would coach youth teams in Oxford, whether it was a mite or a squirt or a peewee team in Talawanda, Ohio, and developing with those teams. So yes, coaching your peers is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So in those early years doing hockey schools and your peers and just getting your feet under you, what do you remember? It's obviously been a long time since that, but what are things that stuck with you to this day that you find uber important? Structure. You've, you've got to have structure. Uh, you know, it's not enough to do a drill. You have to have the progressions in place. Uh, and to be able to move through a drill, a drill, a drill. Um, you know, one of the Indian sayings is that you use every part of the buffalo, get everything you can out of every drill, every little detail, every little thing that can apply it better. Um, and, and that comes from the Miami University system. I, you know, we had the instructor's manual and, you know, I had that bloody thing memorized. And, you know, when you, when you, accomplished evolution number one you immediately move into evolution two you keep the structure of the drill so that you do not have to waste ice time by introducing an entirely new drill so and, and a great example of this was just this morning we practice at eight o'clock in the morning i have the keys to the rink <laughs> so um you know so i get there about 705 open up the rink most of the players are there before 7.15. So they're on the ice before 8 a.m. working on stuff. And, and you know, my I paid for the ice at 8 a.m. So I don't go on the ice until 8 a.m. That's how I justify it. And, you know, I watch them doing a particular drill that we've run a dozen times and then walked out there and said, okay, here's how you're doing it. Let's break down the components of this drill and get it correctly. Which way do you turn? When is the shot taken? What is the timing of the, of the move? And now once they went through and said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the details matter, the drill was infinitely more successful. But that's one of those where I, you know, stop them and say, okay, I think you, you, you think you're doing the drill, but you're not. And you guys are going to be coaches someday. Here's the details that you're missing, and here's why it's important. So not to be incredibly, uh, you know, a Mitch Corn Miami University commercial, but you've got to have structure. And, and, and the Miami structure is the one I grew up with. So I like the component here. The thing that sticks with me is when you're talking about asking questions, what is the timing? When would you do this? And you're, you're introducing the perception with the skill. Because I feel like a lot of people go skill training. Oh, it's great. We can go around cones, and slip things under. But it misses the whole thing that you just talked about. When do you use it? How do you use it? Which situations where you're understanding the reads and when to actually apply it, not just gather the skill. Because it's not enough to just gather the skill itself. All right. So here's another example from this morning. We're working lateral crossovers. So, you know, we're skating circles around the barn. And when we're on the long 
you know, I want three lateral crossovers to the left, three lateral crossovers to the right. Okay, fine. Leave that skill alone. 20 minutes later, we're talking about a tax zone entry, having a player who is on the wall without the puck that's he's frozen. He can't catch a pass right there. He's standing still. Teaching him to move towards the middle to potentially create a pick. So now we talk about the actual entry, and I let them try it by themselves without saying anything, which is huge. And then we say, okay, how about if we go back to those lateral crossovers we were doing 20 minutes ago? Have you taking three lateral crossovers towards the middle and now taking a crossover to the other way to go off of that guy's tail and get the entry into the attack zone? So you know, there's a lot of karate kid wax on, wax off. You know, they, they don't realize why they're doing the skill until you put them into a game situation. And it's it's incredibly rewarding when you do it that way. I mean, you know, watching light bulbs go off is, is really kind of fun. Yes, I, I won't mention the saying what happens when it works, because, uh, you know, that's that's the nice part about being able to coach college kids versus others. Yeah, but uh, absolutely love that. Um, progressing through that, okay. So you had your early coaching lessons, structure, breaking down details, getting the most out of the lemon, really squeezing it. You then came to a, a point where, okay, now your kids are going through. Mm -hmm. You know, that's now kind of we'll call that the middle part of your coaching journey mm -hmm. so far. What sticks out from that? progression of going through it with your your own kids and and that's one of those things that you know every kid is different um and coaches kids can be one of two ways they can be spoiled brats who always end up with a c on their sweater which stands for coach's kid um or you can ride them incredibly hard uh you know take a good guess what my kids had to deal with um and i will tell you that perhaps my all-time favorite coaching moment was my uh second child and, you know, every time one of my kids would screw up in practice, I'd, I'd be standing there on the side and saying, whose kid is that? Whose kid is that? And it just so happened that when my second one, Nash, was, I think, a second year peewee, I'm demoing some drill and I screw it up. And he's standing there in line and goes, whose dad is that? And, and I thought, OK, I right, not only has the kid learned to play hockey, he's learned how to chirp. And I thought, yeah, that I mean, that was one of the the, the best moments I've ever had in coaching. So I know that's not exactly the answer you're looking for, but, you know, I, I hope the podcast uh, can, can appreciate that. You know, yeah, you know, that's when, you know, when they're starting to spread their wings a little bit, when they can chirp you right back. And it was just classically delivered. Uh, it had to be that that cookie deadpan delivery of just like you, you could sense the turning of the screws without a doubt. Put it in your back. Uh, absolutely perfect. Um, wonderful. And you did a great presentation uh, the first year of the Columbus Hockey Coaches Summit on responsibility through the age groups. And I think this is a perfect time to insert yeah. a little bit of that into the podcast where you're touching on the kid taking ownership and all of that. I will shut up and let you take it from here. Okay. And, and, I, and I think that's one of the things that separates our sport. Um, yeah, And with mites, it's kind of tough because the parents are – getting into the culture, the newness. So, so let's leave this away from the mites right now. You know, you can still have mom and dad in the locker room, tying skates and all that. All right. When you have a squirt player from the second they enter that lobby, he carries the bag. Okay. Mom and dad stay in the lobby. The kid carries the bag from the lobby through, through the dressing room. Uh, you know, he ties his own skates. He's responsible for packing his own bag. And coaches, I you know, I would suggest getting a little card that says how to pack your equipment back. You know, shin pads go inside the pants, and they also have the socks and the garter belt. And the, I mean, but regardless of how you do it. And we had a little laminated sign with a string around it. And if a kid forgot any of his equipment, he had to wear that sign during practice, which I'm not sure that you could do in today's day and age. But you know, it's not quite a dunce hat, but it was pretty close to it. Um, but but you want the kid to take the ownership. Now, if the kid can't get his skates tied enough, sure, the coach can go around and do the last couple of laces. But the point is, 
is that they own it. They're in that position where they're responsible for packing that bag, where they're responsible. I mean, they can't drive. They're not going to guarantee that they get there on time, but they understand there's consequences for being late. And that's how kids develop. It, it, it has to be done without the parents. And sometimes it's really hard for those parents to let go until they see the effects of it. But that's something that has to be agreed upon, you know, in a parent meeting to understand what it is we're trying to develop. We're, we're not trying to create the fourth line for the Columbus Blue Jackets when they're nine years old. We're, we're, we're trying to help these kids develop responsibility and commitment and discipline in order to progress to the next level. Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, and it's, and it's sad because you've, you've been at the college level and you've seen the kids that maybe didn't learn those lessons early and how, once they finally do leave the house, how hard it is on those kids and things that they turn to or end up doing or the decision-making quality, it might not be what the parent wants. Um, so I, I would agree that this is the time to understand and develop the understanding of consequences in a safer environment. Uh, what, I forget what the saying is exactly for you, but it's like someone's going to give your kid discipline. Someone is going to give your kid discipline. Hopefully it is a parent. If it's not a parent, hopefully it's a teacher. If it's not a teacher, hopefully if it's a coach. If it's not a coach, hopefully it's a boss. If it's not a boss, this is where it gets nasty, it's probably a police officer. If it's not a police officer, it's going to be a judge. If it's not a judge, it's going to be a prison guard. Someone is going to give that kid discipline. And, and it's a whole lot more enjoyable if it starts with either the parent, the teacher, or the coach before you actually get into the work world or, God forbid, the legal system. Yes. Um, moving on further, so you just touched on squirts. Uh, you said peewees is the most difficult. I am curious to dive into that. Too young to hit, too old to intimidate. Yeah. Yeah. The, the great part about, you know, college is you can demo a drill and throw a hit check. Oh yes. Now I have your attention. Uh, you know, you can't really do that with the peewees. Um, and you know, they start getting into that god-awful middle school age where they think they know everything where they're more concerned about being cool in front of their friends um it, it, it's a really tough pay uh uh gap and, and my heart goes out to seventh and eighth grade teachers so it, yeah the the, the peewees to me is the tough one and remember you know peewee is that age where you really start to separate the rock stars from the groupies you know, the, the kids who are going to go play AAA versus the kids who are going to stay in house versus the kids who are going to stay in CSHL. So it's where the growth spurts start to develop. That's where you, that's where you really start to have separation. Um, and, and it's tough. You know, because your best player at eight is probably not your best player at 12. I, uh, I've seen that firsthand many times over. My dad was the uh, president of Geauga Youth Hockey Association, and that could not be more true. And I always find it absolutely hilarious when we have nine-year-olds that are AAA players and they're going to the NHL and traveling around doing all this stuff. Um, and, yeah, some of those kids are overly focused, but majority of them will definitely be the third-liners on a U16 team or a fourth-liner or quit altogether. And, and I'll tell this story. Here's two kids. Uh, one of them was mine. Um, good, solid Mike players. One stayed in the uh, Canton Akron Caja, stayed in the Caja system all the way up until he was first year Bantam. And then I let him play Barons. The other left Caja and Mites and from Squirt on played you know, Barons, that, that track. Both kids end up at Culver Military Academy. The one who played Barons winds up at the U16, U18 track 
my kid ends up, you know, varsity A, or excuse me, varsity B and then varsity A. They both graduate from Culver. One plays college club at the Air Force. One plays D3 at, uh, I think, Babson. So you look at the journey and where they are at the end of that journey. One kid played three different sports every year. One kid played nothing but hockey. Now, I mean, you know, it's a parenting decision. And for that family and that parent, that's fine. I'm much happier having a three-sport athlete who wound up at exactly the same place. And, oh, by the way, I saved at least a quarter of a million dollars. So, you know, as an economist, that, that's something that I want people who watch this podcast to understand. You know, the ice melts in the summertime. Please let the kids play different sports. Yeah, and uh, all, all roads lead to adult week. Even Chris Chelios is there. But uh, it's uh, hilarious. because Mike, Mike Wilson, give credit to Mike Wilson. He's the one who has the line. We're all one shift away from beer league. Uh, yeah, and you and I have uh, seen all the levels, and all the different types of parents. Um, every every kid and parent is different, but we've all been able to place them within like six or seven buckets of generalities. So um, it's funny when you get to the ones where it's like X, Y, and Z, and we're going to the moon, and then they end up the exact same place as everyone else, and they're looking around too many years too late, or they come back their you know senior year of high school decide to play locally and it's like yep this definitely wasn't worth it <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget this I, i'm i think i was it was either mites or squirts and i told this dad i said your kid your kid's stick is too long and he said well he won't let me cut it and i'm looking at him going he's eight i think you have the ability to decide the length of his stick well i mean the kid was a stud at a younger age and he was out of hockey i think three years later but just, you know, and once again, I want to emphasize this to parents. It makes no sense to buy a $200 stick if you can't cut $75 off of it. You know, the equipment has to fit the player. You know, the, the theory of I'm going to buy fantastic skates that he'll grow into or a super awesome turbocharged stick, but I won't cut it to the right height. Those are both mistakes. So through this journey, um, you've seen the game evolve. I'm curious to see how the game has evolved in your time. Uh, maybe date yourself of when you played versus now today um, and seeing how that evolution has occurred and your thoughts on that evolution. I think the game's better. Um you know, as someone with limited talent, I really appreciated, uh, you know, clutch and grab. You know, I, I really appreciated the ability to uh, have stick work to control players who were more talented than me. Um, but I think the game is, is infinitely better. Uh, and, you know, there's no other way to say it. It's the Soviets. It's the Europeans. And the Europeans changed the game. You know, if you ask... A hundred people who is the greatest player of all time, 95 are going to say Gretzky and five are going to say how. If the game was officiated today, back in the mid 80s, I honestly believe that a hundred out of a hundred would say Mario Lemieux was the greatest player of all time. If, if Lemieux could have played with the way the game is officiated now, I, 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 I can't imagine how good he could have been. So the, the game has evolved to possession. Um, everybody can skate. Um, the contact is more tightly enforced. Um, you know, I, it, in some ways I would say perhaps too tight, but the, the, the game is so fast and you can't hide uh, untalented goons. Yeah, you know, if you can only dress in my level, if you can only dress 19 players, I, I can't afford to waste a second spot on a knuckle dragger. Yeah, you know, he's got to be able to catch a pass. He's got to be able to shoot the puck. He's got to be able to, you know, keep up with the pace of play. Um, 
you know, because the other big change is once they added a second referee to watch behind the play, the game became a whole lot safer and better. So I, I would say the two big changes are puck possession and having a referee behind the play. Yeah, you know, remember the day that when there's one ref and two linesmen, and the linesman would never call a penalty. I mean, anything behind the play was for fair game. And, and I'm going to assume that you took advantage of that, just knowing you. I, yeah, I didn't have much of a choice. I mean, you know, I'm five seven in the program. You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's the way the game was played. Absolutely. And I, I will also tell you this. Um, Everybody knew their role because everybody played bubble boy hockey. You know, you stayed on your side. Forwards were forwards. Defense were defense. There was very little creativity uh, to go around. And quite frankly, 1980 changed the game forever. Uh, You know, what Herb Brooks did in Lake Placid changed the game forever. And if you ever get a chance to watch Miracle, not the movie itself, um, but the extras, and you you get to the interviews where they talk to uh, Aruzioni and Schneider and and just how mind blowing it was to play for Herb, not at a University of Minnesota level, but for a Team USA level, and the philosophy that he put in place, you know everything he took from Tarasov, uh, it, it was. I mean, if you want to say what's the what's the flip of the coin, what was the change? In the game of hockey, it was the 1980 Olympian. And then actually calling the rule books in the early 2000s at the NHL level, I think, was also massive. Oh. Um, but, yeah, I think those are the – for me, those – I couldn't agree more. Those are the two big items. Actually calling the rule book. Who would have thought? Um, continuing on here, you've had some very interesting friendships with – uh, people that have done some amazing work. Mitch Korn's probably the greatest goaltending coach. Uh, definitely top two. Uh, him and Alaire for me are your own mm-hmm. thing. Ian Clark's also fantastic, and there's some others that we can name. Um, you know, how do you go about these friendships with people who are unbelievably talented, unbelievably busy, unbelievably smart, probably a little bit quirky because you can't be uh, at that level elite level without a little bit of quirkiness so like even sean skinner i think would be an interesting person and feel free to name drop a few people because the list is quite amazing and the the resources that you pulled from and it's a shame that we don't hear enough about matt cook because he's got great influences and great great thoughts okay matt cook wants to stay below the radar this is not my day job i i i feel so much for college coaches whose financial success is dependent upon the decision-making of 18 to 22-year-olds, I think that's a terrible way to live. So so I love the fact that this is not my day job. Um, as to why I have the the friendships that I have, and another name that I've got to throw out there is Steve Cady, who has just been a tremendous influence on my life. Um, I wish I had the answer to that. Um, you know, I'd like to think that I'm dependable. I'm honest. I, I like to ask questions. Um, but I think it's one of those things that, that when I ask questions to those people who are, are obviously very, very talented, um, yeah, I, I think there's a, a level of trust. You know, and and it's a goofy situation. You know, I mentioned I have the keys to the rink. Well, why would the owner trust me with the actual keys to the rink? You know, why would I have the keys to the rink and the alarm code? They trust me. You know, if I say I'm going to do X, I do X. Yeah, and, and it's one of the things that we try and impart on our players as we try to prepare them not just to be better hockey players, but to be adults, to be responsible human beings, to be uh, you know, good employees and husbands and fathers, you know, we, we do what we say we're going to do. And, um, you know, it, it's sad that, that that's makes me a bit of a unicorn, 
but that's something that I want to replicate. That's something that I want to teach my players so that we can hopefully expand this. And, you know, Greg, I don't know if I should answer the question as much as you should answer the question. And you know, what, you know, in the years that you've had where you've played for me and coached with me, I mean, honestly, I, I think I'm a reasonably intelligent guy who's honest and does what he says he's going to do. Bang. That's probably it. Um, yeah, I, I think you've, you, I think a, a reason why you're so elite and this is the same with any other elite person out there, whether you're in the NHL, a lawyer, doctor, financial advisor, etc., um, is the ability to self-assess well and correct when you see opportunities to get better. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, let's talk about Sean Skinner, who, uh, you know, once again, he's not normal like me. You know, I mean, you know, you know, Sean has his personality quirks, et cetera. But, you know, I'll go to Sean and say, OK, maybe we should try this or maybe we should try this. And, and you know, we develop, try to help him develop his business, you know, try to put more more money into his pocket. But that's one of those things that I can watch a Sean Skinner video a hundred times and I can't teach it the way Sean can teach it. But I can bring Sean in and have him teach my players. And then something we did at the beginning of this season is we had Sean come in to do a a Zoom with my two best stick handlers and say, "Okay, I'm not going to teach you how to stick handle. We're going to spend two hours teaching you how to teach kids how to stick handle. Okay, to to me, those are special forces dollars. Those are force multiplier dollars for me to take my two best stick handlers and rather than focusing on the skill itself, here's the points you want to see. Here's the mistakes they're going to make. I mean, you know, granted, this is geared to the college level, but why wouldn't I hire Sean to do that? I mean, why would I not? go into my pocket and put that money out there to have Sean teach these two kids how to teach the rest of my team how to do something. And we all know if you have to teach it, you will learn it much better. You you don't know it until you teach it. That is 100% right. And you know that, I mean, the, the difference between being the player and being the coach, you know, you can't assume that everybody can do what you do. You know, th- there's a reason you were the all-time leading scorer at, in the University of Akron. That's, you know, talent and the off-ice dedication and everything you put into it. If you walk in the door as a coach and assume that everybody's going to work as hard as Greg Rivak, you, you're going to be disappointed. So, you know, you've got to bring that down, find that lowest common denominator and work up from there. And I, I know how frustrating that was for you. It's the old Gretzky thing. It, uh, just because just you can play doesn't mean you can coach. There are two different skill sets. And uh, it, it's my cur- current crusade. It's, it's just like how many people, when you talk to them about coaching and improving, they, they go immediately to the content rather than the abilities and how to teach, how to communicate. Um, and and you'll, you'll appreciate this, and I'll, I'll send you the actual videos. But there was a coach. It was at the Vancouver Canucks development camp. And he's like explaining this thing to this guy and he goes over. He's like, does that make sense? What I'm saying makes sense. And then he continues to explain and keep going. I'm like, you, you, you missed the boat, man. Like if it's taking that long, you're doing it wrong. And then I was watching just like another video after that of on like, uh, I think it was Pod Colson. And they're talking about what they're going to do up the ice. And right after that was done, uh, Quinn Hughes goes, okay, what does that mean? Or do you know what that means? He says, yes, that wasn't enough. So Quinn follows up this. Okay. What does that mean? Just a simple ability to check for understanding and that actual skill of coaching like that, that was so much better than the actual coach itself. And I thought that is such a big difference between playing and actually coaching the other guy who is now the coach clearly was a great player knew what the right thing was 
but had no idea on the process of actually coaching. Right. And, and, you know, what's the best thing about coaching college, having the kids for five years, you know, we've got 11 freshmen this year, just go to the back of the line, you know, put the seniors up front, they'll show you the drill. You know, as they're going through the line, I've got my seniors, you know, huddling with the freshmen saying, okay, here's what you want to do. Here's, here's what you're looking for here. Here's the read that Cookie wants to see. Um, it, it's awesome. I, it, it, it is great to have team leadership. And it's something that you don't really get if you've only got the kids for a year or two. Yes, extremely difficult. Um, You've had an interesting way of dealing with the coach-player relationship. And my thought comes back to the nicknames and why you, you, you do that. And I'm pretty sure you pissed off quite a few folks doing it, but I don't think you've ever been wrong in your nicknames. There have been a couple. Um, yeah, nicknames are important. And part of that is, you know, remember how I said that when the squirt enters the barn and they go from the lobby to the, the dressing room, if the kid has a nickname, bang, that's his hockey personality. And and he'll it'll, it'll carry that through the time uh, from the second he enters the rink, he's a totally different person. If he's, you know, Johnny Ripley, the fourth, you know, outside the rink and he's crusher when he enters the rink, it, it, it's a switch. And, um, you know, the, the nicknames are fun and they evolve over time. And, you know, as I tell parents, I said, look, if I don't give the kid a decent nickname, how's he going to know what to get for his first tattoo? So, you know, I mean, it's, um, I'm joking, obviously, but, you know, and we're working through it right now. We're, you know, three games into the college season. And I would say three quarters of the kids already have their nicknames. So is, is anyone called organ donor yet? Um, no, but I, I have I have one kid who is so small. I told him to get his blood group tattooed on his forearm so it'll save time when he's in the emergency room so that, you know, we, we know exactly what we what fluid we need to pump in there. Um, it, you know, and some names are better than others, but uh, it, 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 it's once again giving that kid ownership. You know, and, and I've had several kids where that nickname has crossed over uh, to their real name outside of hockey. Uh, and, and, you know, damn it, the kid's known that name for as long as I've known him. Yeah, I was uh, listening to a, a Navy SEAL once talk about nicknames, and uh, one of the guys on the team was nicknamed Half-Ass, mm -hmm. which may have been his person. Yeah, may, maybe you've been his uh, personality, but um, – no, it's actually because he got half, one of his ass cheeks blown off. That would do it. So that was why he was half-assed. But, I mean, the <laughs> nicknames are quality. And, I mean, there's just the camaraderie. Like, if you're not make, making fun of your friends a little bit, they're probably not that close to you. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, it also builds the humility of hockey. And, and this is another thing that's um, really special about college club. You know, there, there's your on-ice captain and assistant captain. And there's your off-ice officers. And in most athletic situations, you know, your best players become your captain and assistant captain, and your best players become your officers. We don't have that. You know, our officers are not necessarily the best on-ice players, but they're the most responsible. And in many ways, the rest of the team looks up to them to fill those roles. So it... it, it is, that's another thing that makes college clubs so special. You can have a kid who's, who, you know, made, you know, two left feet, maybe not the most talented player at all, but yet he commands the respect of the team in the roles that he fills off the ice. I immediately um, jumped to two players. Uh, one thing, number two, Peter. Uh, both guys probably couldn't skate backwards so so good. <laughs> Uh, to say the least, but just the personal growth that we saw in them, how other kids, even though they may be way more talented, looked up to those kids almost as superiors a little bit. Without a doubt. Um, 
was absolutely amazing. And I couldn't be happier for the, the men that they're becoming and continue to become and grow into. And the ability and the environment that you created to allow that to happen, which I think is absolutely wonderful. Um, I think this might be a great time to segue to Life You, since you and I pretty much, you definitely ran with it, but I want to say I, I kind of gave the idea a little bit. <laughs> that's or At least that's my memory, and I'm just giving myself benefit of the doubt here. But I think it's an, it, it was the most important thing that we did. It had nothing to do with hockey. So I will let you take away what Life University is. Um, we've both written about it. It's on the internet. People can find it, but from your own words. Because um, I remember literally hitting the table of like, I can't believe we only returned three out of 22 freshmen. Yeah. And Life U as a result was a scream in the dark. Um, you know, we had a very talented crew uh, that we recruited in. I think it was 21 or 22. Uh, 22 is probably right. And, you know, you knew we were in trouble in week one. When three days before classes started, one of the kids gets busted smoking weed in the dorm. The class hasn't even started yet. And, and, and this is what we're dealing with. And I remember calling. And that wasn't the problem. Though. The problem is what you're getting to. Yeah. It, you know, and I, I remember, you know, talking to the dad and I said, well, I think I'm going to suspend him for four games. And the dad says, well, that seems kind of harsh. And I'm thinking, oh, good Lord, what are we getting ourselves into? And it, 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 it was just an avalanche of irresponsible, talented players. And you and I are looking at each other and saying, okay, what is it we want these kids to get out of Akron club hockey? And it's not necessarily a league championship. You know, it's not necessarily being great at catching a breakout pass. And that's when you and I both agreed that, look, let's focus on teaching these kids how to be adults. Let's do everything that they should have gotten before age 22. And, you know, because I have that Rolodex of people outside of hockey who are business owners or in different professions, and, you know, once again, people who trust me, we were able to tap into that group of people who could basically walk into this room, command the attention of the college players and say, you know, basically, here's what I wish I would have known when I was 19. And most of these guys are millionaires, and you know, who've either built a successful business or developed into very successful endeavors, either on or off the ice. And it, it's been something that now we're attracting the player. I mean, I you know, this was the first year, really, that every senior is in their fifth year of life university. Hard to believe it's been that long. But, you know, it, it, it you attract what you build. And, you know, am I going to lose... 18 out of 22 kids from this year. I don't think that'll ever happen again because we're attracting the kids who are attracted to what we try and teach in the life university program. I get, I get a little bit of goosebumps when we talk about it because it's been so powerful. Um, and, and I remember when I first brought the idea up to you because it, it was even born out of frustration I had as a player. I'm like, I am playing club hockey. Yes, I may be the most successful one currently here, but this is still the end of the line. Like, there's no professional hockey. Even like Division One hockey players go through this. Like, so for me, it was always thinking of like, okay, I'm enjoying my time. I'm putting the work in, but I I always felt the need for more, um, and feeling like oh shit, I got to go get a real job. I got to actually go all of this and feeling a little underprepared. Um, and that's what attracted me to Matt Cook in the first place was, oh, it wasn't just about you need to dump the puck in here. It was, well, have you thought about that? Hmm, that's an interesting point, Greg. And, and just going beyond the ice and the actual playing of the sport was something that I wanted more of. Um, and after a while, I was like, okay, I can't be the only one. Or if I am the only one, there's no way 
that if we provide that, that other people will not be interested in. And, and obviously our message strikes a lot better with the parents, but the players that it strikes with, I mean, uh, I'm thinking of a few players, they, they came in because of LifeU and Matt Cook. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is something that uh, an exercise we do, um, you know, when we have training camp, you throw a stack of thank you notes out on a table and say, okay, every rookie is going to write a thank you note to someone other than their parents. What do you mean? Okay. It's not an email. It's not a text. Here's how you put the return. Here's where you put the return address. Here's where you put the address to the sender. Here's where you put the date. Here's where you write the note and what it takes. Here's where you sign. You know, the, these are all things that a lot of these kids have never done before. Well, we teach them. Every interview you've got, no matter how well or how poorly it goes, you're going to send a handwritten thank you note for that interview. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it to you this way. Um, so our first two Life View speakers this year, and you think you and I are jazzed about it, the people speaking the people who are actually hiring people. You know, we had two speakers last year who said, I will hire every one of you kids right now. Okay, bang, college was a success. You know, you, you got your first job. But because these employers, these business owners walked out there and said, we figured it out. We will hire two types of people. We will hire athletes or we will hire farmers. You know, we need to hire people who will work hard and will not pout for two weeks if they get yelled at. Well, yeah, okay, that, those are athletes and farmers. So the, the two speakers we've had this year, um, the one is very high up at Oracle right now. He was head of European sales for a while. And as a shocker, at the end of his presentation, he said, all right, every senior on the wall. And you know, we talked ahead of time. He knew how many there were. And he looked at those seniors and said, every one of you is getting a custom tailored suit and I'm paying for it. That doesn't suck. That does not suck. That, that does not suck. Um, the second speaker we've got coming up, I mean, think about what's one of the first real adult decisions these kids are going to make. We're bringing in a car salesman. Okay, here's what you look for in a car. Should you buy or should you lease? Do you want new? Do you want used? What features retain their value? What features do not retain their value? Where else are they going to get this? I, th this is a fantastic investment of an hour of these kids' time to learn the ins and outs of, at that point, will probably be the largest financial decision they make. But, you know, these are the types of things that we want these players to have before they go off into the real world. And, and I think underrated, and you, you, you probably already know this, I think that it's the wide-ranging subjects that are covered and exposures. You've had people that have literally been in combat and told their combat stories and how to shoot. You've had people in that are CEOs of businesses mm -hmm. and you've had in social workers and teachers and everything in between, um, you know, how to interact with a police officer. Like that yeah, was a fascinating one. That was huge. I think my favorite from last year is we had a divorce attorney come in and he divided the team into two squads and we played family feud. Top reason people get divorced. And, you know, it, it's a comp, it's a competitive environment and we're, you know, laughing and yelling and, and all this, but it really delivers a powerful message. You know, it, here, are, here's the family feud as to why people end up getting divorced. And, you know, once again, where are they going to get this? You know, there's not Econ 415 where they're going to cover the financial consequences of a failed marriage. We covered it. You and I get to see that <laughs> way too often. Um, we should record these. This would be a fantastic podcast series. Uh, the weekly life you sessions of Akron university hockey. I, I think people would right. be hold, well hold beyond, on. but I, I do think right here, I want to stop right here. Cause I offer this every time I'm on a podcast. If there's a coach out there 
who wants to implement LifeU, if he wants to see the stuff we've done in the past, if he's looking for ideas, do not hesitate to contact me. This is not proprietary and it not and it should not be. I, I mean, this is something I want to thoroughly contaminate our sport with. So please reach out to me if you would like more information on this. That is cookieacron at gmail.com. C-O-O-K-I-E. A-K-R-O-N at gmail.com. Did I get that right? Yep. Cookieacron, gmail.com. Perfect. Um, yes. We could go on for days on this and the importance and how amazing and awesome. Yes. If you've been through it, you, you, you we now have kids and, and I, I think I'm off the, the group chats finally. Uh, but I remember having kids like, oh no, I'm going to miss life. You guys like this sucks. Like the excitement level uh, once you go through a few because it's it's absolutely fascinating um, to understand other people's story. I think it's it's kind of the reason why people love that uh, Humans of New York. I'm not sure if you've seen that before. It's literally a guy on a street and he just walks up to people and they start talking life stories. Um, it's just like that human connection and experience that's beyond your own. It's phenomenal. Um, but I want to backtrack slightly. Uh, you've been widely successful. You're very good at what you do on your day job and in coaching. Why college club hockey of all places? Uh, you, you could have done a lot more, a lot different, especially once your kids decided to go to Culver Military Institute to escape discipline. Uh, you could pretty much do whatever you want at that point. Um, I love college club. It, it's the last chance I've got to uh, – turn college kids into taxpayers instead of parasites. Um, I'm, I'm a huge believer in trying to create functional adults to go out into the workforce. Um, it's that thing that this is my way of saving souls. Uh, it, uh, in, in this, this is my calling. This is what I uh, believe I was meant to do. Um, it's tremendously rewarding on a day-to-day, on a year-to-year, but especially when you end up at players' weddings. I, the, the best part about this job is going to a player's wedding and seeing you know, 15, 16 teammates at that wedding you know, and, and getting the picture done. And, and the fact that I... You know, I know the girlfriends and I know them when they become wives and I know them when they become mothers. And it and it's just, you know, a whole circle of life, incredibly rewarding thing. Uh, you know, when you get invited to a commencement, um, you know, Herb Brooks had a definition of coaching success. It's based on the number of weddings and baptisms you're invited to. And, and I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, and it's one of those things, and we can talk about this a, a little bit as the kids become seniors. I know they're going to be great coaches. You know, I hope they're going to be good employees. I hope they're going to be good husbands and fathers, but I'm pretty confident that they're going to end up being great hockey coaches. A and I think we need that more than anything. You know, as we move away from the generation where everybody was coached by their dad, uh, you know, and there were only two or three dads who'd ever played the game. You know, now we're getting to the point where I look at you and I look at a, a, a few of the other guys. Um, we'll get better as the coaching gets better. And I think I'm on the front lines of developing the coaches for the 2020s and the 2030s. Well, I can tell you that I was planning on taking off another year or two more before getting into coaching. Uh, but then <laughs> nope. Matt, Matt Cook called and, uh, it would, it would have been you or my dad. Um, that would have been the only ones to get that done. So thank you for, for that. And I, I remember that you, you actually gave out a book, um, and I'll let you explain why you choose to give this book out as the first thing before letting someone step on your bench. Okay. So that's either going to be richest man in Babylon, talent code. Uh, the All Blacks. Um, help me. Which book are you referring to? Football Coach. Which one? Football Coach is the hint I will give. 
the football coach one as I'm looking through. Help me. Inside out. Yes. And, you know, once again, that sort of goes back um, to understand that when you want to be a coach, it's not yell. It's hopefully a little more tell, but it's way better if you try to get inside the player's head. And, and this is my favorite line in coaching. And you can only do it if you've got, you know, a competent group of assistant coaches. If you have that ability to go to that player and rather than scream at a decision he made, to be able to say, what did you see? And have the player talk through what he saw. Did he see any other options? But but understand that we're trying to bring out of that player decision-making and trying to understand that it's okay to screw up. It's okay to make bad decisions depending on where you are on the ice, depending on, on what the dangers involved of a mistake. But when we're talking about inside out, we're talking about getting them to be, to, to feel the team. And if you have a talented player who does everything, it's completely counterproductive to the development of the team. So you want to develop the human being and screaming and belittling doesn't do it. And, and I'll go back to one of my favorite quotes from Craig McTavish, phenomenal player, phenomenal coach. He has a saying that says yelling at your team is like yelling at your wife. The more you do it, the less effective it is. So, and especially for the players who are used to coming out of juniors and where, you know, the coach kicks the trash can and, and, and the, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm good for a trash can kick maybe once or twice a year. But for the most part, they're kids. They're going to make mistakes. Okay? You know, if, if they were that talented, they wouldn't be playing D2 club. Yeah, but we're in a situation where this is where they are. This is the box they've landed on. What can we do to make them better on and off the ice? And, you know, overcoaching, which I think is a huge issue, to me is not the right way to do it. And, uh, yeah, we can go into overcoaching and expectations of players, parents, and fellow coaches another time. But um, I know you've got to run. And I want to cap this off because it's a special episode for, for me as, as the host. Uh, I feel like everyone tries to get someone big for their number 100, uh, you know, going through the largest Scotty Bowman-esque talents, whatever. Uh, for me, there's only one decision and one choice here. So thank you, Matt, for coming on, sharing your time, treasures, and expertise. Uh, this was fantastic. I will definitely have you on in the future and we'll dive down some other rabbit holes, but, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Greg, it's been my pleasure. Um, you know, I look forward to the hockey arsenal, especially the Sunday, which is the perfect day for you to deliver the content, you know, and don't be afraid to learn. And, and an another thing I will say is that once you get to an upper level, whether it's high school or college, you owe it to those players to every now and then give them the whistle and put them in a situation where they need to teach something. Because as we've talked about, you don't truly own a skill until you can teach it. Let the players teach. It, it, it's one of the fastest ways for them to develop. A, a coach is their best playing self those first three years. <laughs> The athleticism is there. You're figuring out how to actually do everything you thought you were able to do. Um, yeah, I love that. So thank you, Matt. Um, two minutes to anything else you want to say. The floor is yours. Uh, knowing you, this is going to be I'm going to shut up type thing, but uh, I want to get the opportunity to say that, yes, you can have the two minutes. Okay. okay, just remember, the game's fun, damn it. Okay, you know, keep it fun. And, and you know, then this is where I go back to John Malloy. Um, every practice ends with a game of some sort, something fun. You know, I, I'm not saying we bag skate for 55 minutes and then play freeze tag for five. 
but I'll guarantee they skate harder in freeze tag than they do on the back skate. It's fun. Put the kids in a situation where they get to compete and, and always finish with something fun. You know, I, there's a saying with USA hockey, never be a player's last coach. Well, guess what? I, I am the last coach. I mean, you know, after me, they've got the name of a bar on the front of their sweater for the rest of their life. Make it fun. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Greg. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.